How much did the late Pope Pius XII know about the Holocaust at the beginning of World War II? A newly uncovered letter is said to provide new evidence, but what does it really tell us? Catholic League President Bill Donahue and Pius XII scholar Ron Rischlack are here to react. The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln is out in stores October 3rd. Podcaster Jason Everett interviews me about my latest turnabout tale. And we'll have part two of my interview with President and CEO of Goya Foods, Bob Unanue. The World Over begins right now. Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. If you'd like to comment on tonight's show, send me a tweet or an X. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover, but first some news. Following a 24-hour assault last week by Azerbaijan to reclaim full control over the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, the president of that breakaway republic has agreed to dissolve all state institutions by January 1st. Nearly 70,000 people, over half the population of the region, has fled into Armenia over the past week following the attack that killed 68 and wounded at least 300. The Armenian prime minister has warned that in the days ahead, there will be no Armenians left in Nagorno-Karabakh in the wake of what he is calling a direct act of ethnic cleansing. Actor and director Mel Gibson issued this statement. History tragically repeats itself as we witness the modern-day genocide unfolding. In the grip of Azerbaijan and Turkey, countless Armenians are enduring unspeakable horrors, loss of life, forced displacement, starvation, and isolation from essential supplies. These are the same Armenians whose roots run deep in a land they've called home for generations. It's a situation we will continue to keep our eyes on in the days ahead and certainly pray for all those suffering. Uh, A few years ago, the Vatican opened its archives to scholars studying the war years of the controversial pontificate of Pope Pius XII. For decades, some have criticized the late pontiff for his alleged failure to speak out against the Holocaust. Last week, there were a flurry of stories in the news claiming that a letter had been discovered proving that Pius XII and the Vatican knew about the Holocaust sooner than they had admitted. Here to react is sociologist and president of the Catholic League, Bill Donahue, and distinguished professor of law at the University of Mississippi and author of Hitler, the War, and the Pope, Ron Rischlack. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Uh, Ron, I want to start with you. Uh, For decades, the Vatican, the Catholic League, and scholars like you have been answering these charges that Pius XII did nothing or was actually complicit in the Holocaust. An official at the Vatican archives recently discovered a letter written by a German Jesuit, Father Lothar Koenig, dated December 1942. It suggests that the Vatican knew what was happening in Nazi concentration camps. Ron, give us some background on this new piece of what's being called evidence. What kind of information does the letter contain? And is there anything new here that wasn't part of the record? Well, thank you very much, Raymond, for having us on to talk about this. I'll tell you, when I first saw the story, I had several people email me 
I thought it was nothing because this letter is dated a full two days before the Allies issued their statement, which Pius had seen in advance. It was issued four days after the Polish government in exile had issued a statement on this. And 10 days later, Pope Pius XII issued his statement talking about this. It really did not move the needle at all in terms of when Pius XII knew stuff. We've known for a long time that by December of 1942, he was well-informed. He was working with the uh, uh, plots to overthrow Hitler. Uh, and, and yet this made headlines as if it were some major breakthrough. It's really the only important news from it is it's once again verification because the author said, hey, please don't tell people about this because it will get me and others engaged right. in rescue killed. Hmm. Bill, you issued a press release in early September about uh, this new documentation that found evidence that Rome actually did shelter and protect large numbers of Jews during the Nazi occupation of Rome. Why do you think there was precious little coverage of that story compared to what this Koenig letter is getting internationally? Well, it has the same thing. To, it is the exact same reason why the, the clergy sexual abuse scandal, which has long been over, doesn't get any press when they find out there's virtually none going on. Bad news about the Catholic Church, real and contrived, is going to make the media. Good news is not going to make the media. You have Sir Martin Gilbert, one of the greatest authorities on the Holocaust, who said that over 3,000 Jews were saved by Catholics when the Nazis came into Rome on the direct orders of the of the Pope. You see, they'd want to make it sound like every nun and priest and, and layperson went out there on his own. No doubt some of them did. But the, they don't want to give any credit to Pius. And by the way, the real question is this. Hmm. Pius was labored on. I've written about it. Ron is the real authority here, not me. He was labored on by New York Jews and others. Do not say a word. We're not having any parades. We're not having any demonstrations. We know what's going on. It's only going to make matters worse. Now, what if Pius said, I think you're wrong. I'm going to speak out and scream from the mountains. What would happen then if Hitler even was even more savage in his response? Then they would say that you, you, you betrayed us. And, and by the way, it's always compared to what? During the war years, for three years, while the Nazis were, were, in, were in control, including at the time of the extermination, the New York Times had a total, count them, nine, three editorials per year for three years, nine editorials. And when they talked about the extermination, I'm not making this up, I have the proof, they put an ad for turkeys mm -hmm. for Thanksgiving Day on the same page where they talked about the extermination of the Jews. So it's always compared to what? Look, the archives are showing that our side is winning this war, and that's why the media are not happy about it. Mm. Ron, I, I want to take a closer look at this timeline. Okay, it's well known by scholars. I mean, you referenced this earlier. The Vatican was receiving reports of na Nazi atrocities as early as 1941. The Koenig letter came only days, as you mentioned, before the Allied joint statement on Nazi brutality. It read this way. From all the occupied countries, Jews are being transported in conditions of appalling horror and brutality to Eastern Europe. In Poland, which has been made the principal Nazi slaughterhouse, the ghettos established by the German invader are being systematically emptied of all Jews except a few highly skilled workers required for war industries. None of those taken away are ever heard of again. And that's, of course, that allied statement. Now, Ron, uh, Pius didn't join that statement, but he surely saw it. And then he made his own statement on Christmas Day 
1942. Tell us about that. Well, exactly correct, Raymond. He, uh, he, he clearly saw it. It was an allied statement. He was not a member of the allies. You know, the Holy See was neutral. However, on Christmas Eve, December 24th, he issued his own statement speaking of hundreds of thousands of people who, without any fault of their own, sometimes only because of their nationality or race, he used a term that was well understood to mean Jewish, uh, were being consigned mm -hmm. to gradual extinction. They were being eliminated. In the context of the time, the the statement from the Polish government exile, the statement of the uh, allies, everyone understood where the Pope stood, which is why on Christmas Day, the New York Times editorial praised Pius XII for being a, a lonely voice out of the silence of a continent. Yeah. So, Ron, okay, the New York Times praised him. World leaders praised him at the time. Um, my question is, does the Koenig letter prove that the Vatican was somehow indifferent or complicit in the Nazi Holocaust? No, I, I, literally, my first response was, hey, this is good news. It, it shows that the Pope, and it's another piece of evidence, the Pope was warned not to, to speak out, not to, to, to pound the bully pulpit. Mm. Uh, it mm -hmm. doesn't move the needle at all on when he knew about things. He picked a program of careful uh, 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 involvement with the, the, the folks who are trying to topple Hitler, the plots, and with, with uh, negotiation, with with dipl diplomacy to try to do what he could and rescue, to save people, uh, right. and, and did tremendous work with that. Well, as Bill has written about, I mean, there were 800,000 Jews that he probably saved. That's the estimate uh, in, you know, in Catholic entities uh, throughout the world, but certainly in Rome. I mean, they were housing. I, I was I interviewed nuns who sheltered Jewish families in their convent at their own peril. Bill, as a media watcher, I want to get your take on this. Part of the Koenig letter is being selectively ignored by many outlets. Ron referenced this earlier. Father Koenig, in the letter urged the Holy See to not publicize what he was revealing for fear of his own life and the lives of others who had provided the intelligence that he was reporting. Why omit that important imperative in the source letter, Bill? Is that just sloppy journalism or something more? No, that's intentional. They know exactly what they do. It provides an off-ramp for the Pope. Uh, listen, as I say, the Jewish leaders all over the world, and certainly right here in New York City, they implored the Pope to, to, to do what you can to help us out, but don't, don't raise the decibel level. Uh, they, we saw what happened with the Dutch when some of them spoke up like this. The best way to handle right. after all, the Pope didn't have an army, an air force, a marine corps. I mean, you know, what exactly was he supposed to do? We know that Hitler had, had plotted to assassinate him. You're not going to assassinate somebody unless you think he's a threat. No, the Pope did what he could, given the circumstances of the time. And when I compare what the Pope did to other religious and secular leaders, he comes out the hero. Yeah. I mean, even FDR turned away a whole ship of uh, Jewish refugees. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing the isolation that Pius XII is subjected to historically when they don't consider the, the wider record and what he was doing, again, at the risk of his own people and religious houses all over Rome. Ron, I want to get your thoughts on the way this story has been reported. It doesn't change the timeline, nor does it change the fact that the Vatican was working constantly back-channel diplomacy and sheltering Jews in Rome um, during this occupation. Obviously, Pius XII and the Vatican Secretary of State had to be careful when handling any kind of intelligence regarding these atrocities. Why did news of the Koenig letter move the needle at all? Or did it? 
Well, um, literally, I don't think it did among people who who study this, but it uh, made headlines all over the place. So uh, one of the most offensive parts is many of these articles where it was a headline that the Pope knew about the Holocaust didn't even mention the part where the Pope was warned not to speak out about this. Uh, Because a lot of people, Mm. you know, I mean, there was a there was a plot uh, developed to try to discredit the Pope, discredit other Catholic leaders as well uh, in these newly communized areas after World War II. That's really what all this dates back to, is a a big disinformation campaign to portray the Pope and other Catholic leaders as sympathetic to the Nazis or in caring about the Jews or afraid of Hitler. The Mm -hmm. the narrative changes to fit the the, the needs of the the hour. Uh, But uh, the, the truth of the matter is Pius XII did what he thought was appropriate. In retrospect, I think, you know, it's fair to argue and debate whether a different avenue might have worked, but I'll defend the, the avenue he took, and it certainly was taken in good faith. Uh, Ron, have you had a chance to go back into the archives since the end of the pandemic? Uh, as I recall, COVID kept you from a, a planned visit there. COVID did cancel my trip, and I have not made it back to Italy since. I've had uh, a, a number of issues that kept me away. I'm hoping maybe next summer. I've traced all the new findings, which I think is the important thing. Mm-hmm. All right, Ron Rischlack, thank you for your insights. And Ron's book, Hitler, the War, and the Pope, is required reading for anybody interested in this wartime pontificate of Pius XII. Bill Donahue, before I let you go, um, I, I want to get your thoughts on a few stories uh, you've been keeping your eye on. Uh, in a tale that's been missed, I think, Attorney General Merrick Garland testified before Congress on September 20th And he claims he knew nothing about this FBI investigation of traditional Catholics. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray has testified to the same effect. Despite those testimonies, there has still been no public statement by the FBI or the DOJ showing their intent to get to the bottom of this situation. You've written a letter to the House Judiciary Chair, Jim Jordan. Why? Because, first of all, Jim Jordan has been uh, a a real friend. He has been great. I've written several letters to him uh, about Jane's revenge and these these people, which Merrick Garland didn't know anything about them. They're the ones who burned down the Catholic churches uh, following the overturning of Roe v. Wade. He never seems to know anything about anything. Jim Jordan is a friend. He chairs the House Judiciary Committee, and he's been looking into this. And so, listen, even if I give them the the benefit of doubt, let's say Christopher Wray, the head of the FBI, and and Garland, the attorney general, let's say they didn't know exactly what they were doing in the field offices. We know it was in Portland. We know it was in Los Angeles. We know it was in Richmond. They know now, don't they? So the word Mm -hmm. aghast was used by Wray when he first heard about it. The word appalling was used by uh, the attorney general, uh, Merrick Garland. Okay, so if you're aghast and appalled, now you know what happened. Why hasn't anybody been fired? Where is the internal review? Hmm. What, what, who's being held accountable? How did this start? Was there somebody outside the FBI who came up with this idea? And by the way, I had a nose from this from the beginning. I knew it wasn't just, quote, traditional Catholics, you know, and anybody happens to mm-hmm. like the Latin mass and, and, and has criticized the Pope on, on occasion. Now, all of a sudden, I said, no, wait a minute, they're going to go beyond that. And yes, they finally came out and admitted, yes, there was another level. They went after mainline Catholics. Mm. They wanted Catholics to spy on each other. My problem with, 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 uh, with, with Garland and, and with Ray is, even if you didn't know, then you know now. And what have you done about it? Absolutely nothing. Hmm. 
Bill, uh, I, I want to switch gears here. In January, the league released uh, a film, a documentary, Walt's Disenchanted Kingdom. Uh, it was a documentary on the decline of Disney and its pursuit of a particular political agenda. Now, since then, we've seen this ongoing battle between Disney and the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. Disney's stock has plummeted. The theme parks are, are uh, you know, operating at a loss. What is your take on this pushback that Disney has received this year? And is it making an impression on the way they do business, do you think? Well, we know it's the fact it's the culture war. And I, I don't know how much, I'll never know, what role uh, our documentary played. It obviously played some role, otherwise they wouldn't be crashing. We know, for example, forget what I've done. Listen, listen to what uh, uh, Bob Iger has said. He has said repeatedly, we don't want to be part of a culture war. We don't want we don't have an agenda. We, we've got the message. We want to quiet things. Now, you don't say that because you're having problems at the theme park. We know what he's talking about. He's gotten pushback, not, not only from the Catholic League, but, but by people of faith across the country. He's gotten pushback from the Muslim countries, which won't even show his movies. They lost over nine hundred million dollars with eight movies over the summer. Uh, they're in trouble. And you know what? Last year, Carrie Burke, she's no longer the head of content. They moved into another position, but she's still there. Carrie Burke was the head of content last year. She said 50 percent of all of our new characters are going to be LGBTQ plus, 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 plus. And I said, well, wait a minute now. Are they have they reversed gears now? Is Iger saying we got the message, we got the memo, and we're going to pair back? Why don't they just get back to the Snow White and the, and the, and the Lion King days, which were wholesome good entertainment, and stop with the, the left-wing agenda, which, what they're feeding? No, they got the message. And mm. uh, to, to see them uh, writhing this way, I have to say uh, there's a certain uh, amount of, uh, what would the Germans say, schadenfreude? Bill, in recent months, we have seen these flash mobs who descend upon... Uh, malls and outdoor establishments, and it's a smash-and-grab robbery operation, the most recent example being in Philadelphia, where 100 youths ransacked uh, stores and stole property. You just wrote a piece about this on the decriminalization of crime and larceny. Is this laissez-faire attitude toward crime by local officials and law enforcement feeding this new wave of criminal activity? What did you find? We never had anything like this back in the 1990s in New York City or when Giuliani was here. Uh, we didn't have it uh, until more recent times. The breakdown occurred, at least in New York, with people like de Blasio and George, uh, George Soros-funded DAs uh, in big cities around the country. The, after the George Floyd uh, fiasco, they basically told the cops, if we don't want to defund you, we want to demonize you. And they got the message. I see it here every day in New York. People break the law blithely with alacrity. They jump the turnstiles, they smoke up, they, 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 they shoot up their needles in front of you, and, and the cops see it and nobody does a thing about it. The word is out. There's no accountability. And people will act like savages unless, you know, unless, unless there's some kind of a law and order. Bill Donahue, we will leave it there. You can keep up with the work of Bill Donahue and the Catholic League at catholicleague.org. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. Tonight, I have something a little special for you. On the occasion of the release of my new book, The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln, on Tuesday, October 3rd, I decided to relinquish the reins of the show to someone else. And since Tad Lincoln's father is such an important part of the story, I'm joined by Catholic dad, podcaster, and founder of Chastity Project, 
Jason Everett. Jason, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, talk to me about the new book. And uh, well, I guess I'm going to shut up now and I'll let you ask the questions. It's your show now. Oh, thanks, Raymond. Well, no, as a father of six boys myself, I just want to first just thank you uh, for writing the book. We're always looking for good resources for the boys. And I think I speak on behalf of a lot of the listeners, viewers, like I don't even know, I had never even heard of Tad Lincoln before. So maybe what was it that drew you to him and uh, and who was he? Yeah. Well, that you know, that's a great question. And look, I didn't know anything about Tad Lincoln. I mean, I must have read his name in passing in some, you know, Lincoln biography. I've certainly seen the picture of he and his son, but I didn't know who the boy was. But, you know, I, I covered the White House for so long. And every year we lived in D.C., the annual turkey pardon, which they have at the White House, is a big deal. They bring turkeys out and the president pardons it. It's kind of a lighthearted um, way to intro the holidays and the beginning of the Thanksgiving and then Christmas season at the White House. But I didn't realize until I started exploring it that that tradition is intimately tied to Tad Lincoln and his father, Abraham Lincoln. And what I discovered as I unpacked it is it's really the story of a father and a son and how they taught each other lessons of mercy and forgiveness that are really captured in that beautiful national tradition. And for me, Jason, it gave Thanksgiving and that tradition such deeper meaning. And, and, and I suddenly realized, oh, this is the origin story, if you will, of the national holiday of Thanksgiving and the form in which it, uh, it's been handed on to us. So to me, it's not only a neat way to connect to these historic figures and a young boy who lived in the White House, a first son who had an amazing impact, but it's sort of the origin story of a holiday. Yeah, I was talking to my kids about it on the way to school this morning and had to admit, like, I had no idea where this whole origin came from, from pardoning the turkey. So it's kind of neat to learn the backstory of it. And I know your book is, yeah. this one's not kind of like a one-off. This is a part of a series, you know, the, the turnabout tales. Yeah. Like, what's the significance of that? Well, you know, uh, look, uh, when I started writing for kids, I did the Will Wilder series, which is a middle grade series. Um, I, and when I visited schools, I realized so many kids curriculums were being remade and historical figures that you and I learned about as a matter of course, uh, Edison and Abraham Lincoln and, uh, you know, you, you name it, they were sort of being forced to the margins and no longer taught yeah. in schools. So I thought, how could I get young people to focus anew on these lives and how do you make it rele relevant to them? And I thought I should probably isolate the young lives of these great figures, and maybe a moment of crisis in those young lives. And so that's what we did. The Turnabout Tales series came from that. Every one of these stories is about a turnabout in a young life, where the motto for the series is uh, challenges faced, decisions made, history turned. And that's what happens. That's what happens in all of these stories. And Jason, it's what happens in our lives. But I think it's important to remind young people the obstacles you face are not the end of your journey. In fact, that might be the portal to your calling and the rest of your life. No, that's a great point. I know the first book that you wrote in the series was about the young Tom Edison and how he got into a lot of yeah. trouble himself and uh, his mom ended up kind of rescuing him from that mess. How, how is this book, you know, The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln, kind of similar to that story and different? 
Well, they're similar characters in that um, both are a bit rambunctious. They're rambunctious boys. You're the father of six boys. You know what that is like. Uh, I'm the father yeah. of two. I know, you know, they, they get out of control. People want to, you know, lock them down or give them medication. That's the, that's the worst thing you can do, I think, in many cases. And in the case of both of these boys, um, Edison was uh, irascible. He would speak out of turn. He was bored in class. His mother saw the possibility and uh, when he was thrown out of school at eight years old, she brought him home, homeschooled him, fed his passion and really saved her son and nurtured the greatest inventor of all time. In this story, Tad Lincoln, he really saves his father. And as I as I delved into this relationship and look, it, 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 there aren't many books on Tad Lincoln. There's one I found that's dedicated to Tad. All the others were kind of little scraps and pieces in the uh, you know, canon of Lincoln biographies. But what you quickly realize is Tad Lincoln was a touchstone uh, of normalcy and joy to his father and for his father. And you can imagine this man's contending with a civil war literally across the river outside his door. Um, the, the, the bad reports are coming in. The country is fractured. He's got uh, the death of a son in his house. And his youngest son is still with him. So he bonds with that boy. They are inseparable. And people wondered, why did Abraham Lincoln and his wife allow this kid roughshod? You know, he ran roughshod all over the White House. He was hitching goats, uh, you know, running through the East Room of the White House. And the mother would laugh and say, oh, that's just Tad being Tad. Let the boys be. Um, he, uh, Tad would crash into his father's cabinet meetings. And the, the staff obviously was irritated by this. I mean... They describe the boys out of control. They say Tad was a hellion. But to Abraham Lincoln, he would double over in laughter when he encountered his son in the course of the day. He needed that, that boy. He needed that child as a reminder, I think, of the possibility of joy on the other side of the war he was fighting and a reminder of what really mattered and what he was fighting that war for. So um, it opens up history. It's a personal family tale, and it's related to a national holiday. So there's so many reasons, I think, this story is important for families, especially as the holiday season gets closer. Yeah, I think it definitely resonates for fathers, because I know with my six boys, like, you know, sometimes they'll be looking for them around the house and it's just quiet, you know, and I know if my kids are quiet, you know, it means they're either like sleeping or doing something illegal. Like those are pretty much the only options on the table. And so, you know, mischief is really the operative word when it comes to raising these little boys. So when I was kind of reading the book, I thought, okay, this is a great way not only to introduce the kids to the meaning of the holiday, you know, in this case, Thanksgiving, uh, but it's just also a lot of fun, you know, for the kids to read. And I know him, Tad, and his brother kind of created a lot of mischief in the right in the White House, as you're mentioning, right? Yeah. And I and, you know, I, I people ask me, why did you title the book The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln? What was so magnificent? What was magnificent is the role that played in the national life and in the life of the president of the United States. That mischief was magnificent. It saved the president from deep depression. It rescued him from the, the weighty affairs that he was dealing with and probably gave him a different perspective. You know, historians tell us he loved to spend time with the boys. He loved their pranks. Uh, he would indulge Tad, even when Tad was, you know, smearing paint on the walls and, and you know, letting animals run through the White House. Uh, Lincoln delighted in this. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us, dads, moms, that even though at times I know the kids make a mess, 
they are an important part of our lives. They're there not to serve us or to do something extraordinary, but to be kids. And that reminder, that connection, uh, that relationship is more important than the thousand things you have to do on your list that day. And uh, that's why I thought we should celebrate the magnificence of children. And that's really what the backstory is for me as an author, why I wanted to tell this story in part. Yeah, and honestly, on a personal note, I think my favorite page of the book, I don't know if you get this feedback often, but my favorite page, uh, yeah. we were just to mention that Abe Lincoln, uh, after in the evenings, you know, work is done, he devoted himself to the time with his boys of just telling them stories, yeah. reading them books. And it just made me think about what, what life had been like before screens were there, before your email was blown yeah. up on your phone at six, seven o'clock clock at night and you could just be fully present to your boys to your family and it just i kind of stopped on that page and i kind of ruminated on that of like what would have been like back in the day when it was just you and the kids you you and your wife without all these distractions and how could how can we kind of get back to that and uh that's kind of a i don't know just a page that really hit me and kind of stopped me in my tracks but you know with jason that that Yeah, that's why I mean, that's really why I write for families, because that moment that resonated with you, that's really the whole game. It's not the book itself. The book is a vehicle. And that vehicle is to unite grandparents and kids and uncles and aunts and kids and mom and dad with kids so that you're sharing your relationships, your experiences, your reflections on this story, and it deepens and it widens that story, and it turns it into a family memory that they never forget. That's what I think every good story should do. And you, you, I mean, you really captured and, and nailed my entire rationale for doing this and this series. Yeah, no, it's it's not about the book. It's like what I say when I go fishing with the no. kids or doing that. It's not about the fish. It's not about the boat. It's not about the tent. It's it's just about being with each other. And now, Tad, you know, yep. he wasn't the perfect kid. And you kind of address that as well. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that he faced. Well, you know, um, near as we can tell, he didn't have much schooling. He had trouble reading. Um, he had a cleft palate, which made communication difficult. Uh, you know, you hear Lincoln's secretaries talk about how difficult it was for him to be understood. Uh, you know, they, that communication was difficult. But obviously, his mom and dad could understand what he was saying. So that, you know, created a deeper bond with the family and Tad. So he had friends, but not to the level of depth that he had with his family. So um, he was a boy who was not an exceptional student or particularly brilliant, but he was an important, crucial part of that family and the national life. And, you know, I've always been drawn to those stories, Jason, whether it's Mother Angelica's story or my Will Wilder series, the underdog, the character that everybody kind of dismisses and says, oh, they're, they're good for nothing. You know, look, what a terrible student. Look, they're, 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 they have handicaps and disabilities. And what good are those people? No, those people are often the most important part of not only that family story, but many times our, our lives today are impacted by their contributions. So we should discount no one. And that's kind of the, I guess, the lining that runs through all of these turnabout tales, that no life is expendable, every life is precious and, there, and, and of value, whether you see it now or you see it later. And um, I, I thought it important to rescue Tad uh, from uh, the annals of history where he's been forgotten for too long, like you said. And I have to admit, I'd never really heard of him. 
before I started delving into the story. Yeah, as you're speaking, a line came to mind that St. John Paul II once said that in the end, everything else will turn out to be unimportant and inessential except for father, child, of love. Like that's, that's all eternity is going to be is father, child, love. And so this is really the story of like a father and a son and kind of the mercy that they taught each other. Why did you want to tell this story now in history? Well, you know, I stumbled upon it. Um, I didn't realize, and you think back, you were talking about how, how simple the times were. They were also pretty complicated because, you know, there was a wire um, depot near the White House. And in the evenings, Lincoln, after he put the kids to bed, he would walk down to the wire depot and he would get the, the wire reports of what was happening on the war front. So, you know, that was the beginning of that information age. You know, that was the text messages of the day. So it was already crowding in on Lincoln, but he made time for his family. He made time for that magnificent mischief that he shared with his son. Um, but what I didn't realize is at the same moment, the White House wasn't barricaded the way it is today. You could walk up as a citizen and wait to see the president. So people would snake, lines would snake outside the White House, begging for mercy for their kids who were at war or asking clemency for some, you know, war crime they had committed, abandoning the war field or whatever. And Lincoln in the evenings would also sit with Tad at his side at his desk and listen to the pleas of parents and loved ones begging pardon and mercy and forgiveness for their kids. So it's curious that Tad absorbed all of that. He saw his father, who granted 82% of all the pleas for clemency and pardon that were asked. He watched that, and later he reminded his father of it at a particular moment, which I capture in the book. And this really, I think, is the backdrop that Thanksgiving is created in. You know, it was Lincoln who created Thanksgiving as a national holiday. It was celebrated in different ways. Lincoln wrote the proclamation that, that canonized it, if you will. And it's the same year that this turkey pardon tradition began. So uh, it's a neat piece of family history and national history. And that's why I, I, I felt I had to tell this story. Now, I mean, I know we've all seen a lot of pictures of Abe Lincoln, uh, but pretty much all the photos I've ever seen, I mean, he looks pretty serious. And obviously he had a lot to be serious yeah. about what he was, you know, struggling with in the nation at that time. But you have him on the cover just smiling. And there's even images of him inside just busting a gut laughing. Like, why did you want him depicted yeah. that way, especially on the cover? Well, because it was a historical detail that I had picked up from uh, the, the two of uh, Lincoln's secretaries wrote about this. There were other visitors to the house that remember this, that when when Tad Lincoln would pull a prank on his father, um, create some some chaos in the house. Lincoln would double over in what they called neighing laughter. And you see that again and again in the historical accounts. Some say squealing laughter. But I had never seen Lincoln <laughs> depicted this way. We always see that very dour, you know, sad face, yeah. deep line etched President Lincoln. So I thought, yeah. let's do something different. So you have him bent over in, in laughter here, reacting to Tad's mischief, uh, which happens throughout the book. Again, we, we always we see a snapshot of a person, but we don't realize this man was also a father and he delighted and he, he had joy in his life. And I thought it important to show that face of Lincoln that perhaps had been lost in time. Yeah. And in the light of the way that education and history classes are shaping up nowadays, um, do you have kind of a bit of fear that we're losing sight of a lot of these great American lives? 
Yeah, well, look, this was the, one of the prime movers for my writing this series. I mean, uh, I think we, we've... Look, a people that forgets its history is forgetting its foundation and forgetting itself. Um, and if you look at those recent polls, Jason, the Wall Street Journal did a, did a polling on patriotism, on belief in God, on belief in family. All of it is down by like 25 points from what it was a few years ago. Um, What that tells me is we are in a moment of um, not only a loss of faith in the Almighty, in God, but a loss of faith in ourselves. They don't even have faith in community anymore. So I think it's important to remind young people, families, that you don't you aren't drifting in ether here. We didn't just pop out one day and come from nothing. There is a foundation. There's a chain of lives that go before us and that hopefully will come after us. And it's important to know who and what those lives were, what they represented, what they did and the decisions they made so that we can use those lessons, the mistakes and the glories to chart our own course into the future. And um, and I also want young people to know Everything you're experiencing, it's not new. Other lives have passed this way. Other people have made similar decisions and faced similar challenges. That's what history teaches us, I think. I think history are nothing more. It's like the Bible. It is a guide for living. It's a guide for living. It shows you what happens if you go one way or the other. And these, these great lives, I think, uh, are neglected and shouldn't be. Yeah, it's it's almost as if we've been given this historical portrait of these people in like a, a two-dimensional lens. But for me, this book kind of made it yeah. three-dimensional, really just showed the humanity of him. I mean, the thought of kids running around the White House and coloring up the walls, it's like, yeah, I mean, that I mean, all, our house is like those are the frescoes of the domestic church. You know, they're, they're markers, they're paint and sludge marks everywhere. And so to me, you know, it re- really brought it to life. So what what's next in the in the whole turnaround uh, or turnabout tale series? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Jason, that, that's such an important point that it brought for me, it broadened Lincoln. I had read a number of Lincoln biographies. I never quite saw him this way until I focused mm-hmm. on Tad. So, you know, every one of these turnabout tales are, are a new American life. Now we're broadening it. We're going to do you know, an international perspective down the road. The next one is about a great president who didn't start out so great um, and yet how the flaws the perceived um, uh, weaknesses in that young life became the foundations and the seeds that blossomed into one of the men I think is probably one of the greatest presidents of all time. But I won't tell you who. That's called a teaser. And I'm going to leave it there. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time you put into this. I'm looking forward to reading uh, it to my boys as Uh, soon as we get it in a couple days here. But God bless you. Keep up the wonderful work. And thank you. Jason Everett, you, you, I, I'm so thankful to you, not only for the interview, but for your insight and, uh, and, and for being a dad, which not only this book reminds us, but life reminds us is the most important thing of all that you do. Uh, Jason Everett can be found on X, formerly Twitter, at uh, Jason Everett. And uh, you can visit chastity.com, which is his great uh, apostolate. The Magnificent Mischief of Tad Lincoln is out Tuesday, October 3rd. Uh, at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, wherever books are sold. And come join me on tour. I'm going to be at the Barnes & Noble in Metairie on uh, uh, Friday, October 6th, outside of New Orleans. Saturday, October 7th, I'm in Orlando, Florida at 2 p.m. at the Barnes & Noble there. Uh, finally, I'm going to be at the Cool Springs, Tennessee, 
uh, Barnes and Noble. And in between, I'll be at San Marco Books in Jacksonville. Go to RaymondArroyo.com. All the tour information is there, information on the book and much more. Jason, thanks for, for joining me and coming aboard. Good to be on. Good to see you. Thank you. I will be sharing more details in the days ahead of a very special project to me, my new Christmas album, Christmas Merry and Bright. We showed you the trailer last week. It is in stores now, streaming everywhere. Uh, There's much more to share with you, including the tour that's going to be traveling the country in uh, late November, early December. But I hope it will rekindle the excitement as we move toward the holidays, the excitement of why so many of these Uh, Christmas carols and beloved songs were created in the first place, and the thrill of the coming of God made man. Uh, Christmas Merry and Bright is already number one on Amazon's jazz vocal charts. It's available now at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, EWTN's catalog, Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you get your music. And of course, I'll be telling you about the concert tour in the coming days. You can find out much more at Raymond Arroyo Christmas.com, Raymond Arroyo Christmas.com, including a trailer and uh, tour information. New Jersey-based Goya Foods has grown to become the largest family-owned food company in the United States. In part two of my interview with Goya president and CEO Robert Unanue, we talk about how he became involved with the box office sensation The Sound of Freedom, as well as his latest passion, Goya's new initiative, to combat child trafficking. Here's part two of my interview with Babu Nanue. In 2020, you decide to donate a million pounds of food plus, multi-million pounds of food, to the people of the country. And you're invited by the White House to go and be part of a formal presentation of that. Now, tell us first, you had a relationship with the White House during the Obama administration. You collaborated with that White House. Tell us about that, and then what happened later. Yes, with the with the Obama administration, uh, their their uh, chef uh, Sam Cass, they said, "Hey, the the White House wants to reach out to Goya because we represent and are really entrenched in the Latino uh, community, which is more obese and more diabetic than mm. other communities. So we want uh, you to." Join uh, Michelle Obama's uh, Let's Move Let's campaign move, yeah. and the USDA My Plate, mm-hmm. which takes the nutritional pyramid and puts it into portion control, mm-hmm. uh, a, a plate. Spanish and English, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted us to, we put it on millions of cans. We worked with the White House to send a message out in different ways that you need to. Uh, eat right and eat in in, oh. in controlled portions. So uh, we we answered that. the call. And then in 2020, yes. you're invited to go back to the White House for this donation of goods. And you are in front of President Trump and you say something that wasn't vetted. I saw President Trump as a guy who really uh, was focused on life. You know, I said, this guy is, he's, he's, uh, He's, he's, he's for life. He values life. And I wanted to get closer to him. And I went through different people. But, uh, and and, and uh, we, COVID enters. We're out of food. We're an essential business. But all businesses, uh, work is essential. Right. We were working, 
But they shut everybody down. They shut down their spirit. The reason to get up every day, God, family, work, is one of the worst things that ever happened to this country. It destroyed the spirit. And we were one of the few people working. Hmm. Well, other things, uh, you couldn't go to mass, oh. even outside. They wanted to shut those things down. And and it was an attack on the working class, an attack on the people's attack on our spirit. Hmm. And I wanted to reach out to give the company country a gift of food when there was none. Hmm. However, I wanted to run it through the chief executive. I wanted to give it through Donald J. Trump uh, so that he could find a way to uh, us get close to him as a, as a Hispanic uh, company and, 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 and community mm-hmm. and him get back to us. You say, I, I, I'm going to quote you. You said, we're truly blessed to have a leader like President Trump who is a builder. That set people off. There were people calling for boycotts of Goya. What did you think when you saw this titanic reaction to this very kind of innocent line that you had uttered at the White House? You know, uh, it just came... Like I said, it was a voice from the... The word came out of my mouth from the Holy Spirit. And I thought nothing of it. But the next few days, actually a couple of weeks, yeah. I'm on... My face is on television every day. Laura Ingram, who you who know, uh, you know... Better once or twice. Yes. I was on her program, and she said, are you going to apologize? Yeah. And I said... Uh, I started some nonsense answer. She says, are you going to apologize? And I said, hell no. Mm. And um, the fact that I was there, that I was at other White Houses, that I was there offering food mm-hmm. for pe- people, a country in need of food, mm. uh, created a, and a call for a boycott, created a backlash and a boycott. Yeah. And it was so successful, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, uh, we did so well, we, we decided to name her Honorary Employee of the Year. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the and I talked to people all over, and they say, you know, when that boycott hit, we went out and we supported you. Mm-hmm. And not just our base was strong, uh, new people coming in from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, only the elites, some of the elites like Julian Castro the, and... Uh, AOC, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton, uh, came out to, because these are the woke elites that wished us harm. And I think that's part of the evil that's around yeah. us. Did you feel it was a test? You had, to, you, had to, you had to at least entertain the idea of walking this back. Because I'm, I'm sure you were inundated, not only from outside, but from within. I got hammered uh, from... Uh, organizations that wanted me to appear for them to apologize and to walk it back uh, from parts of my board. But the letters I've gotten since then and still get are very positive. So uh, I believe the Holy Spirit put me in that position, but also cloaked our company, cloaked me in that and and, and gave me the courage because, yes, we were hammered all over the place, but I, I wasn't... Uh, going to back down. Huh. What unites Latinos? What in your mind unites Latinos? Well, you know, Latinos come from 
Everywhere. Everywhere. We're all here. Uh, we are the second largest Latino country in the world. Yeah. Uh, we'll be the biggest group by 2050 or next Sooner. week. Or yeah, Sooner, exactly. yes. Last Wednesday. In the, in the last Wednesday. And uh, so politically, of course, you know, I might get in trouble with this one, but there's, there's communities that come into this country that are when the U.S. and the U.S. is... The, it's corrupting certain groups. Mm-hmm. You come into this country and say, hey, look, do nothing on your own. Yeah. We'll take care of you. And so they end up, you can take hard work, hardworking people and turn them into leeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we're a country of immigrants and people have come into this country working hard. But when you're, you come in and you're handed something, look at our big cities. It, it's... it's yeah. It's it's where, you know, it's all being, uh, we're all being corrupted in, to some extent. The but mindset of dependency. God gives us this this life, for a purpose, not to not to be, you know, to wake up every do- morning with purpose, and that's what COVID did. It took that away. We got to wake up yeah. with a God purpose of God, family, work, and, and that's what unites Latinos. That's what unites Latinos is, are those values. God, God, family, family work. work country Hmm. education you have always been very civic-minded as a company as a ceo i know in 2021 during hurricane ida you all sent thousands of of hundreds of thousands of pounds of free food to the folks in louisiana that were suffering from that so you've always had a mind on what can we do to change this culture and this country not just keep buying Hmm. our stuff tell me how in that mindset, why did you decide to invest in this Sound of Freedom movie? Because there's a link here between an organization you're going to found and this investment in the movie. Why did you decide to go invest in this film? Well, you know, our, our giving has always been, you know, for the community. And, and actually, one of the... We did distribute food, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. Mm-hmm. So several years ago, in the, in the Trump White House, I, I was there for a... Presentation Hispanic Heritage Month, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I run into Eduardo Berastegui, who I'd run into maybe 15 years prior or so uh, when he did Bella, yeah. which is a beautiful movie. And he did film, Little yeah. Boy. Mm-hmm. Um, He's familiar, of course. People on our audience know know Eduardo well, so right. they know who you're talking yeah. about. So he goes, "Hey, Bob, I'm doing this thing. There's this guy, you know, Tim Ballard." He's ex-immigration uh, guy. He's he's uh, officer. He's um, he's working. We're working on a film where he's in going and rescuing children yeah. that are being trafficked. So this whole topic of trafficking and exploiting children and younger and younger and younger, mm. where they're being sold to pay off debts to come into this country, uh, exploited, and it's a um, it's one of the biggest industries in the world, this yeah. uh, trafficking. It's hundreds of billions of dollars, the trafficking along with the drugs, yeah. exploiting these children. So, But I knew nothing about this. Well, he was and, having trouble getting investors because of the subject matter. Because people like mm-hmm. human trafficking, who wants to go see this on a Friday night, right? It's dark and all this other things, but it's, it's real. Mm-hmm. And so it's this reality... We, we, if we can continue to live in a bubble, unless we're 
this is brought to the light and truth unless it, it's we we uh can can see what's happening uh then we then there's a call to action yeah. so i see this movie and i said wow this is something that is incredible he didn't have the money to buy the movie back cuz fox had it and he needed to buy it back which is really like double the budget of the movie right fox had it 20th century fox and disney bought it mm-hmm. and disney had it and he had a bunch of uh, people supporting him, but it was at at this point where he needed to get it away from Disney, yeah, because they wanted they wanted to kill it. Mm-hmm. Everybody wanted to kill it. Uh, Netflix, uh, Amazon, nobody wanted to carry it. So, mm-hmm. uh, and we went through all these for for a couple of years. Yeah, and uh, but so about two years ago or so, I went to Eduardo and. Uh, Again, I think it's the Holy Spirit. I didn't know what he needed. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell me what he needed. I, we offered, hey, I want to help get this, help you with this, get this movie out to the public, the, the light of day. Mm-hmm. And uh, he stopped. He prayed. He was, and 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 we were able to get it out of there. It stayed for a while until Angels came along, Angel mm-hmm. Studios, yeah. and they have, it's over 18 million views now. I mean, you, you put your money where your mouth is. It opens up a whole new endeavor at Goya. You create something called Goya Cares. Right. Tell me about Goya Cares. Yes, Goya Cares was inspired by the movie, by the, seeing the horrific uh, tragedy and, and evil of, of child trafficking. I'm, I'm talking down to single digit uh, and beyond. It's, you know, there's no line. There's no line between the womb and, and now after the, you know, in life. That, and I, I, this, this has to change. I took a leap of faith. Eduardo's an incredible guy, you know, and, but, and I, I really didn't think at a, at a certain point that I said that that investment's gone, but it wasn't. It wasn't the money. This child trafficking crisis has gotten worse because of the open border, where we just release thousands of children a year into the country with no one. They're just turned loose. Well, HHS, Health and Human Services, ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Uh, so far this year, eighty-five thousand children mm-hmm. are lost. The Latino is the biggest exploited group. Mexico is the biggest provider, but it's not Mexico. Everything's coming through Colombia, Panama, in up to through Mexico mm-hmm. from every country on earth. Right. But mainly, the Latino is the most exploited uh, person. And the women: seventy percent of human trafficking victims are women. Twenty-five percent are children. What is Goya Cares doing? What we've done is we've uh, joined, we've brought a coalition together of different groups. ICMEC, the International Center for Missing and Exploited Children, Catholic Charities uh, of San Antonio, of New York, uh, Covenant House, many groups uh, that focus on also child trafficking. Mm-hmm. Also, which I think is very exciting, is we partner with Monique Burrs, which is we've got videos and educational videos and lesson plans for the schools, taking the, the message into the schools to educate uh, children, teachers, and parents. Mm. 
uh, where actually the parents are, are involved too. Exactly. What's next for you? What do you see as next for you and for Goya? What do you, what do you, what's left that you'd like to accomplish? You know, we, we, we'd like to spread our, our, uh, of course, our, our company we, we, for Goya, we'd like to be, go around the globe. And, and uh, there's already in Spain five and a half million Latinos in Spain. And we're in Spain, wow. not only with our olives and olive oil but that my father put up, but distribution. And, and so Latinos are growing around, uh, around the country, but around the world. But we also want our message of family loving each other, caring for each other. Yeah. The, the idea of Goya Cares is uh, caring for each other. We need to, as children, as people, stand up for the other person, stop looking inward, yeah. and, and stand up for the other person. Love your neighbor as yourself, and we can save lives, and we can change the direction yeah. of, of this country. Well, thank you for standing up for people. And really creating and extending this Goya family. It's incredible to see in person. Thank you. Great Love you. to see you, Bob. Love you, too. Thank Great. you. You can find out much more about the amazing work of Goya Cares, Bob's new initiative to battle child trafficking, at GoyaCares.com. My thanks to all the Goya folks for their hospitality and helping us with the interview. That's all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. Synod Central returns next week. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.